You're listening to an ACR 2021 podcast, a compilation of reports, interviews, perspectives, and panel discussions that feature the Room Now faculty and noted experts. Hope you enjoy. Hello, I'm Jonathan Kay for Room Now, reporting from the ACR Convergence 2021, which was supposed to have been in San Francisco, but has been viewed from various places around the world, and I mean around the world, by many people, many attendees, including the Rheumatoid Arthritis Reporter Team for Room Now. I'm joined here by eight colleagues who've been busy during the entire meeting covering the different aspects, and they've posted videos on Room Now, which I'm sure you've seen, and there are more to come. So please, after this, check back to Room Now and watch more information. We have 15 minutes in which to give an overview of the entire meeting uh, as it relates to rheumatoid arthritis. So we're not gonna be able to cover topics in great depth, but we're gonna look at several topics that have been highlighted. Uh, one of the topics that's been a major feature of this meeting has been safety or perhaps lack thereof of some JAK inhibitors with presentation of the oral surveillance study and the STAR-RA uh, claims-based analysis looking at tofacitinib safety issues. Uh, there's been a lot of discussion about multimorbidities in rheumatoid arthritis, especially cardiovascular and interstitial lung disease. And then, of course, uh, we've all been kept largely to our own cities and institutions because of the lack of travel due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And there's been a lot presented at this meeting about vaccination and the relationship between vaccination, disease activity, and also uh, medications used to treat disease. So uh, without further ado, let's delve right into the topic of the oral surveillance study. Who would like to give an overview of that study? So Jonathan, I can quickly do that. So I think everybody's heard about it by now or else we're living under a rock and not under Australia, under a real rock. So the oral surveillance to remind people was a phase 3B4 study mandated by FDA to look at CV safety, looking at tofacitinib 5 milligrams twice a day, 10 milligrams twice a day, the non-approved dose, and compared to a TNF inhibitor, which was in US, um, adalimumab, and rest of the world, atanercept. And it was an event-driven study, active RA on methotrexate adding one of these three uh, arms and the primary outcomes unfortunately um, didn't go as well as we would like so tofacitinib um, cumulative dose was the primary outcome of CV events and they were numerically higher uh, than TNF inhibitors not statistically higher but not statistically within that non-inferiority co um, confidence interval so numerically higher and could have been higher or lower or even higher than anticipated, but was certainly higher numerically and the confidence interval too, lo too long. Uh, MACE uh, was, so that was MACE. Looking at malignancy, the main outcomes were more malignancies, especially in longer um, time on drug, um, not really a dose response between five and 10 milligrams of TOFA BID. And malignancy was especially in older males who smoked and the usual malignancies that we would see such as lung cancer, et cetera. And that was numerically and bordering on statistically higher than serious infections, especially over age 65, higher with TOFA than the TNF. And also looking at VTE, which we knew about from 2019, um, the data sort of more 
preliminary slash finalized of VTE, especially PE numerically, um, quite a lot as um, odds ratio or hazard ratio higher in especially uh, 10 milligrams twice a day. So uh, time on drug efficacy, some of those data will be further presented, but looked about the same. So with large randomization, 1500 per group, I would say um, that certainly TNFs look darn good and tofacitinib a little bit of a surprise to me with the data. Now, this study limited uh, enrollment to subjects who are 50 years or older, so it cannot be generalized to individuals younger than age 50, uh, but certainly over age 65, one probably has to be a little bit more cautious about prescribing tofacitinib. Uh, Ng Kim at the Brigham uh, Pharmacoepidemiology Unit uh, did a claims-based analysis, the STAR-RA study, which was presented. Uh, David, you're familiar with that study. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's basically um, trying to see whether some of those uh, trends that we've seen in the uh, in a randomized control trial, we can observe from real world practice and in, in bigger numbers. Firstly, looking at all, all comers, but then secondly, trying to apply the same entry criteria. So they looked at um, three um, uh, insurance databases, and I think that comes with all the provisors and provisors that insurance databases uh, from the US come with. So Optum Market Safe, Market Scan and Medicare. Um, and uh, looked at um, so all comers and tried to figure out what the malignancy risk and the cardiovascular risk was from that. And then as well, trying to apply that uh, that added risk that we um, added risk population that we saw in oral surveillance. And I just want to kind of say that obviously in oral surveillance, we saw that the risks really did increase with jack inhibitors when, once we started looking at patients with um, greater great other other risk factors. And so that's not something we've actually seen in the star RA data. We haven't been able to drill down on that. But um, what we've seen is that when you take all comers um, with with jack with uh, tofacitinib uh, in that kind of real world cohort, so not an oral surveillance population, there doesn't appear to be a risk. You know, after the best efforts to reduce it, uh, you know, wash out any confounding best pharmacoepidemiological efforts, there's really, um, they seem to have the same type of a risk profile, but it's when you start to look at the oral surveillance type population that things certainly start to trend in the wrong direction. Um, I'm sure we're going to hear more about this. Uh, I know we're going to see a paper um, sooner or later where we can really go through the nitty gritty, but all of this does make me a little bit nervous about where we sit with um, with tofacitinib um, in uh, an at-risk population. And I guess the question which came out at the FDA session was um, how justified is this to apply to baricitinib, to patacitinib, to other JAK inhibitors, to TIC2 inhibitors that might come to market? Well, whether justified or not, the FDA was prompted to put a boxed warning on the entire class, and it's going to make uh, it a bit difficult to do comparative effectiveness studies with TNF inhibitors because patients are going to recognize that there's a potentially increased risk if they're randomized to a JAK inhibitor. So these studies, uh, what you mentioned, David, brings up the issue of multimorbidity. And the two major comorbidities that were discussed at this meeting, a lot of talk about cardiovascular risk, uh, early screening and so on, and also interstitial lung disease. Richard, you were going to talk about interstitial lung disease. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is an oral uh, presentation that's just been on, which was Abstract 1918, uh, presented by Rebecca Brooks, uh, University of Nebraska. Um, so, so almost a personal uh, thing. Uh, for a long time, I've been banging on about when we have these patients with uh, rheumatoid arthritis interstitial lung disease, the first thing you need to do is control the rheumatoid disease. And I get shot back at me by the respiratory guys usually that, uh, 
oh no, this is a fibrotic process. There's no uh, immune thing going on here. You need to treat this like IPF, give them antifibrotics. Um, and we never, didn't really have um, data to say that this was part of the rheumatoid process. And I think now that this study really does uh, support that. Um, so what they did was they used uh, the VARA registry um, to look at uh, patients with RA and RALD and look at survival. And they found that um, disease severity measures in terms of DAS28 and MD-HAC associated with survival um, quite strongly and independently um, of um, their respiratory function, FEC and DLCO. So that's very interesting. Uh, there was another presentation in that session just before we are meeting now, uh, which suggested that interleukin-6 may drive the production of transforming growth factor beta and that might drive fibrosis. So there's a biological or at least a potential biological basis for the rheumatoid arthritis disease activity driving the pulmonary fibrosis. So as you point out, it's very important to control disease activity. And I'd just like to shout out to uh, the presenter of that uh, paper. She's a medical resident uh, who did this study at University of Nebraska. And we certainly hope that she pursues a career in rheumatology. So uh, interstitial lung disease was one of the comorbidities, but uh, what about cardiovascular comorbidities? Morali, you were going to mention something about that. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know we should uh, perform cardiovascular risk assessments in our patients, but how soon should we be doing so? We know there's a long-term risk associated with it, but Abstract 0285 showed that in 43% of newly diagnosed Dutch patients with RA, they had an intermediate or high calculated 10-year cardiovascular morbidity risk within the first year post-diagnosis, and 76% of them had an intermediate or high mortality risk. And again, Abstract 0271 showed that patients aged 40 to 75 years of age with a recent RA diagnosis within the past five years had a higher prevalence of subclinical atherosclerosis compared to age-matched controls. So cardio early cardiovascular risk assessment in patients with RA is critical and necessary at diagnosis. And other abstracts like abstract 0276 had um, intimated that pulse pressure, so systolic blood pressure minus diastolic blood pressure can predict carotid plaque in RA. And abstract 0170 had hinted at using epicardial adipose tissue volume on CT chest scans to predict coronary atherosclerosis. There were other great abstracts as well that talked about other autoantibodies that can confer risk of incident cardiovascular disease. So it was, it was great, uh, greatly highlighted in this year's ACR with a lot of great abstracts talking about potential tools to predict. Absolutely. Uh, Minnie, you were going to talk a little bit about some other cardiovascular aspects. Yes, so um, I was particularly interested in the abstracts talking about steroid use and um, cardiovascular risk. So approximately a third of our patients with rheumatoid arthritis are on long-term steroids, despite the known risks. Um, and so there was a really good abstract 1428 in one of the plenary sessions um, on Monday, um, which was presented by Beth Wallace and colleagues. And it basically found that 30 days of steroid use in a six-month period um, was associated with um, about a 15% increase in the odds of MACE over the subsequent six months. Uh, and that was independent of the baseline cardiovascular risk um, and the previous steroid exposure. So that was quite interesting. And then it was sort of backed up by another abstract, which was uh, presented just now in the last sort of hour or two, uh, abstract 195, sorry, 1915 uh, by Brian Coburn and colleagues. 
Um, and again, that showed in the Medicare and Optum cohorts that um, the use of low-dose steroids, actually it was even as low as less than five in some age groups, some of the older age groups would then increase the, the risk of MACE. Um, so yeah, um, some quite striking results from those two, those two abstracts. And that last abstract that you mentioned was also presented by a medical resident from Hospital University of Pennsylvania. So there's a lot of part or more present, more participation in the meeting by future trainees. Uh, and Akhil, we can't forget about dementia. So uh, you were going to comment about dementia and rheumatoid arthritis. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, um, so there are quite a, uh, quite a few abstracts looking at you know multimorbidity and uh, cardiac vascular risk and ILD. And I think one of the things we need to also look out for is uh, risk for dementia. Um, abstract, um, um, to, uh, sorry, abstract, yeah, 284 by my Macedova colleagues, they looked at the risk factors for instant dementia in a large population-based cohort of patients with rheumatoid arthritis that were followed uh, from 1984 to, uh, to uh, 2014. And uh, they found that uh, there are several risk factors associated with the increased risk for dementia in this large population-based cohort. So one was the big cardiovascular risk factors, including heart failure, diabetes, and stroke. But they also found that large joint swelling, which is a key uh, feature seen in clini clinically active RA, is a major uh, was also a major risk factor for incident dementia in patients with rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, so that, that that was really interesting. Is that studies have shown that the risk for dementia is high in patients with RA, is likely driven by inflammation, uh, accelerated atherosclerosis, but now we're seeing clinical factors that are associated with this increased risk. And we can potentially identify patients that are at high risk for dementia. And then there's another abstract, abstract 1646, uh, which was also from the same from the Mayo Clinic as well, looking at biomarkers for um, uh, within the neuroimaging that in patients with RA compared to without RA. And they found that there were some significant differences in patients with rheumatoid arthritis compared to without rheumatoid arthritis. And um, uh, these significant differences, it's hard to say at, at this time whether it's associated with uh, dementia or a cognitive function, but we're really excited to see in the future what these differences in the neuroimaging in rheumatoid arthritis patients suggest um, if it's risk for dementia, cognitive dysfunction, and even the impact of DMARDs um, on neuroimaging findings in RA patients. So there's a theme that's running through here, which is something that we've all been taught uh, from the moment we started fellowship training, which is control the joint disease. Uh, Active joint disease predisposes to dementia, predisposes to interstitial lung disease, predisposes to cardiovascular disease, even predisposes to lymphoma. Uh, work coming out of Sweden uh, has shown that the higher the disease activity, the more likely patients with chronic inflammation are going to develop uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So we can't forget about the joints. Uh, Orly, what, what piqued your interest at this meeting? Oh, I've, I've seen this this uh, this quite interesting uh, abstract and presentation today. See, it's funny because it's been such a long time. I've been hearing my patients telling me that they have joint pain when the weather is bad, especially in Glasgow, you know, we have that a lot. So it's quite interesting to see that uh, someone actually looked at it on a scientific way because there must be something happening, isn't it? Um, so that was abstract 1912. And um, they basically reported, um, they observed meteorological features and this activity in a large cohort of patients for more than 12 years. 
and they did correlation and see they separated um, patients in two groups. First group was low disease activity, second group moderate to high disease activity. And actually the fun thing was um, in the moderate to high disease activity group, the higher the humidity, um, uh, you know, and the, the, the lower the temperature, the more uh, pain, but also the more swollen joints. So, yeah, so, I mean, there must be something um, happening there. And I, and I wish, um, you know, more people will look at that in the future so we can know um, in a molecular or cellular, you know, basis what's actually happening. So one would predict that there would be more activity of rheumatoid arthritis in Glasgow than there would be in the Caribbean <laughs> uh, or in the south Maybe. of France. Uh, that's fascinating. And uh, the COVID-19 pandemic is the reason why we're all on Zoom so much and why we've only been meeting virtually for the past two years. I really long for the time when we'll all be able to get together in person and have uh, informal and spontaneous conversations on the red carpets between the posters and so on. But uh, Eric, you paid attention to a lot of the COVID-19 presentations at this meeting. What was most impressive to you? Yeah, so obviously there's you know quite a lot of especially the, the late breaking um, today that just a lot of posters and, and uh, presentations on on things throughout rheumatology, but in particular you know many of them being rheumatic rheumatoid arthritis patients. Um, there's a lot of information about vaccination, how well our patients get vaccinated, uh, who should get booster shots. Um, you know, the one thing I think our patients think of a lot is they think about making an antibody response and, and what's your what's your antibody titer. Um, but the, the data really just shows how much more complicated it is than that. So what, one of the, the presentations today, uh, late-breaking abstract 18, which looked at actually after the second shot, um, those patients had serological and humoral immunity that was not, not significantly different between the patient on methotrexate and the patients not on immunosuppression. But the T-cell response was impaired in 29%. Um, and so what that means the durability of the antibodies that are made uh, and how to go from there, you know, certainly shows that there's a lot of different aspects of T-cell, B-cell immunity. Um, you know, the, the abstract before that, which was abstract 17, looked at booster response of, of trying, um, you know, a homologous booster shot or switching to a different type. Um, so there's a lot in the development saying that most of our patients probably will need booster shots and, um, and that, um, certain medications, specifically things like the B-cell depleting agents, uh, are putting our, our patients at higher risk. So with vaccination, some several problems arise in my practice. One is patients who get vaccinated while they're on methotrexate, but don't speak to me or contact me before that, and they do not withhold methotrexate for two weeks after their vaccine dose, or at least for one week. And there's some suggestion that they'll have less in the way of an antibody response, at least after the first uh, dose of the vaccine. Uh, it seems from that uh, L17 presentation about booster doses that uh, this lower dose or lower antibody response is overcome uh, by a booster dose. Most frustrating, however, are those individuals in the United States who despite widespread availability of the vaccine, which isn't necessarily the case in the rest of the world, refuse to be vaccinated because they don't believe in the vaccine or they say it's been developed too quickly and they don't trust it or uh, for other reasons that are unbeknownst to me, uh, they're not taking advantage of the vaccination. So it's very important. I think everyone agrees that it's most important, especially for patients 
not just on immunosuppressives, but patients with autoimmune and inflammatory diseases uh, to receive COVID-19 vaccination. So uh, we've had a whirlwind tour of this meeting uh, where we've looked at a number of topics. We've looked at oral surveillance and uh, toxicities of JAK inhibitors, especially tofacitinib. We've talked about multimorbidities, interstitial lung disease, cardiovascular disease, dementia. We've learned about the relationship or the potential relationship between whether uh, the humidity and the rain that Ian McGinnis talks about is, that's omnipresent in Glasgow, bring about flares of rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, and then we've talked also just now about COVID-19 vaccine, vaccination. Uh, I wish we had more time to uh, have discussions and interaction among this wonderful group of RA reporters for Room Now, uh, but uh, you're going to have the opportunity to go to roomnow.com and listen and watch many videos that have been filmed during the course of this meeting and videos yet to come. A highlight of the RA videos are interviews between our reporters and a number of individuals who are well-known in the field of rheumatology, talking specifically about their areas of expertise. So I thank each and every one of you on the panel and all of you watching this video and look forward to seeing everybody again next year, I hope in person uh, from Philadelphia, uh, from ACR Convergence 2022. Uh, and on behalf of my colleagues on the RA reporter team, I'm Jonathan Kay for Room Now. See you next year.